heard there's a big game today, so I thought I'd wear a jersey for, uh, for preaching. This goes off my bucket list of preaching in a hockey jersey, which now I can say has happened after today. So way back when, when I was a younger tyke with less gray hair, I was in the Boy Scouts, and I was in this troop called Troop 577, and we have, joining with us, Troop 577. Why don't you guys welcome them? <clears throat> So it's Scout Sunday, is that right? Is that what it's called? Yeah. And so they're here. This is a troop that actually meets here at the church. For a while, it looked like people were afraid to sit near them. You guys look really scary, I think. Kind of, <laughs> kind of imposing. So if you have your Bibles, open up to Ephesians chapter 2. That's where we're going to start off. If you don't own a Bible, there's a Bible sitting in front of you. That would be our gift to you. So go ahead and grab that and use it. So uh, Ephesians 2 is where we'll start. Uh, every few years or so, there's just different stats that kind of come out about churches, and a lot of statistics about churches are really kind of sad. Uh, they talk about the dwindling numbers of people who go to church, uh, the vast hordes of people who don't remain in church. There's sort of this alarming rate at which people leave and failing to attract and all kinds of stuff. Not only that, but there's research that indicates that those who belong to churches, members of churches share values very similar to those who don't go to church. So in other words, in things like relationships with, with divorce rates and, and spending habits and policies of churches and all that kind of stuff. And it can be kind of depressing to read these stats and kind of wonder, what, what is that all about? What's going on there? And I think that at least a part of it is a misunderstanding of the notion of conversion and a misapplication of evangelism. We're in a series right now that we're calling Church is God's Idea. And Church is God's Idea is the statement that says, we are going to learn afresh what it is that God wants us doing and being as a church. You see, we just recognize that the church is made up of sinners, and the church is led by sinners. And so we need the Holy Spirit to to blow through all the junk that gets accumulated over time. So the Christian church really is in kind of constant reform. The Reformation happened hundreds of years ago, but we're in constant need of reform. Because we can pick up bad habits, we can we can pick up ideas and mindsets that aren't biblical at all. At the start of this series, I just said as a church, look, we're gonna, we're gonna, this is a humble invitation for the Lord to, to come and, and tell us where we need to repent. Tell us where we need to change. Where, where do we have it wrong? Where do we have it right? And we should fan that into flame and keep working there. The letters you are are lit up in white. Why is that? Why? Because, that's right. Because the people are the church, right? Just as, just as your, your house doesn't make the family, it's the people in the house, so it is with this building. This building isn't the church. You are the church. So when I say that we want to grow the church, really what I'm saying is that we as a collective group of people need to grow up in Christ. That we need to invite the Holy Spirit's scrutiny into how we're doing things. Let me suggest this, that instead of reacting to statistics about church, instead of freaking out about sort of the, the alarmist mentality that can sometimes accompany that, what if we instead just proactively followed God's commands for the church? Uh, one of the things that goes on, there's actually big business about people who are going to come alongside and be a consultant to your church. There are all kinds of church expert seminars of how to grow your church and how to 
tweak your church and do this and that. There's all kinds of books that are out there um, teaching on this stuff. And I don't think any of that in and of itself is sinful, but I think it's out of balance. Hello. Um, did that wake you up? Um, I think it's just out of balance. Uh, you see, we have the freedom to sit at the feet of the church expert, meaning God, and just soak in that and say, God, what is it you want from us? And what's, what's true is this. It's cheaper to do it this way. It's free to open up your Bible and say, God, how do you want us to be as a church? But it's a lot harder to do it that way, isn't it? When you go to a seminar, they can give you seven steps to, to turn your church around, seven things that will immediately do this or that. And so this whole notion of, of um, sitting at the feet of the church expert. I've called this, this morning's message, Turn and Tell. I want to look at the conversion aspect of this for a minute. What does the Bible say about conversion? What does it say about this notion of turning? Raise your hand if you have seen the doctor in the last year. Raise your hand if you've been to the doctor and seen the doctor. This is a much, okay, there we go. I was going to say, it's a much healthier group than first service. First service, like I feel like every hand just shot up. When you go to a doctor, you're, you're looking for answers to your questions, right? So if you went for a routine checkup, you're asking this question, am I okay, doc, right? Uh, if you're going and the doctor orders some tests on things, you're, you're wanting to discover, is there a disease there? Is there something there? And so you're, you're looking for answers to questions. With any kind of treatment, the key to all of it is a, is a proper diagnosis, right? A proper understanding of what illness you have so we can know how to treat it. A couple of weekends ago, I was, I was out on a hike at Quicksilver with my family, and it was pouring down rain, and we are just having a blast. And Tegan's my sixth grader, and Tegan does what Tegan does, which is to climb almost anything around. And so she was just climbing trees left and right that day, and we get done with our hike, we're home, and that evening... There's two of us in our family who are hypersensitive to poison oak, myself and one of my other daughters, and Tegan grew a beard, which is really odd for any lady, but it's really strange for a sixth grader, and it was made out of poison oak. It was just red all right here, all like, like, a, like a big old beard, and I said, Tegan, you're in for a miserable few days, and it just got worse and worse, and, and there it was. Anyone know how to treat poison oak? What do you do? Okay. Okay. Anyone else? Okay, calamine lotion. Don't touch it. Right. In general, here's how you treat poison oak. You manage the itching, right? You make sure there's not still... We have Boy Scouts in the room. You guys should know this. You guys should have... What am I thinking? You guys should have jumped up and demonstrated. In general, you manage the fact that there could be other uh, oils around. You don't want it to spread. But in general, there's, there's not a whole lot you can do to cure yourself of poison oak. You have to just endure it. You have to just kind of walk through it, right? Chlorine, I was a swimmer in high school and always got poison oak. Chlorine and ocean water. If you ever want to go surfing with open sore poison oak, that actually does speed it up a little bit. But in general, you don't do anything. Now, let's say that my daughter, instead of hugging trees, was hugging a king cobra, right? And that king cobra decided to bite her. And she decided to do the same treatment that she does for poison oak as she does with a king cobra. What would happen? She gets to take a really long nap, right? She, gets, she would die. Because if you do nothing when you get a snake bite from a venomous snake, you will die. And so the diagnosis is really key. If you just apply treatment across the board every single time, that's a bad plan. So what does the Bible say our diagnosis is spiritually? Ephesians chapter 2, starting in verse 1. 
And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God. But God, verse 4 says. Here comes the good news. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast." I don't know if you caught what just happened, but in that diagnosis, if you were born of woman, meaning you're part of the human race, the Bible just lumped everyone in together. And without conversion, without utterly turning around and going in a completely different direction, all of us are dead in our sins. All of us are over there, dead. Did you catch all these words that are here? I mean, the bad news that the Bible lays out is really, really bad news. Dead, all, by nature, you're a rebel. Sin is bad, and everyone knows that. You don't have to be a Christian, you don't have to be a churchgoer to understand sin is bad. But it's actually worse than most people think. It's not just that sin is bad, but sin is deadly. So if you're not cured from sin, it's not that that you're doing wrong things, but you are dying. The good news of the Bible is really, really good. Did you see these things that were made alive, were raised up, were seated with Him? It's a gift. We're created in Christ. This rubs on the pride of every man, woman, and child, but here's the truth that the Bible lays out. Everyone has one primary problem, and it's inside them. And the solution to that problem is entirely outside of them, meaning they can't do anything to solve their fundamental problem problem of being dead in their sin. That is the spiritual diagnosis for all of mankind, according to the Bible. These truths direct our steps in having a right view of conversion, of evangelism. Now, we must get really good at figuring out what is true and how to test things, because quite simply, Satan is a counterfeiter. He sends fake ministers to preach fake gospels, which are producing fake Christians. So when you see stats that has the church acting exactly as the world, could it be that they are believing a false gospel? Could it be that they're still dead in their sins? Could it be that they haven't had that but God moment where God raises them from the dead, opens their eyes and makes them able to see? The Bible warns us of this. Second Peter chapter 2, verse 1 says this, But false prophets also arose among the people. That's the past. Then he says this, Just as there will be, future, false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who, who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. 
Where do these false teachers come from? It says, from among you. From among the churches, there will be people who will teach false hope, false doctrine, false gospels, and people will buy into that. Every parent wants to teach their kids how to discern truth, how to test things and see if they're real or not. Kids, here's a little secret. Your parents are still trying to figure that out too. I want that for my kids because I don't want them to get duped. But I'm also in that same boat of going, God, is this true or not? I want to discern truth and live by the truth. False hope says this. There's not only no possibility to change, but no need to change. There's a certain spirit in our culture which says that the height of maturity is just coming to grips with who you are. You can't fundamentally change. So embrace it. Come to grips with that. You know what the enemy of this false hope is? It's those who would come along and say, no, you can fundamentally change. And you need to change. Christian, have you ever been thought of as prideful, arrogant, and narrow-minded because you've presented the gospel message which says that you can fundamentally change? And guess what? You need to change. That comes off in our culture as very, very arrogant. Who are you to tell me I need to change? The short answer is, I'm nobody. I'm just the messenger. But that's God's diagnosis, is that we fundamentally need to convert to change. What does Jesus say about all this? Jesus says it this way, you must be born again. Jesus, the early church, and all of Scripture agree on this. Turn around. What does the word repent mean? To turn, right? Fundamentally, not turn a little like you're changing lanes, but a U-turn. Born again means a, you are going dramatically in the wrong direction, and you need to fundamentally change. Repent from sin and trust in God. I was talking with a friend this past week, and she was telling me about her testimony a little bit, and she said this. She said, you know, I was raised in a home where my mom was in ministry, and I was given every opportunity to live by what's true. And I took that opportunity and I flushed it down the toilet and I went running away from God and from my mom. And she put it this way, I broke my mom's heart over and over and over again. And at some point in her life, in the midst of all the junk that she was trying out to get happiness, at the depths of her despair off in this corner, God made her alive to the truth. God opened up her blind eyes and she repented and she trusted in God. And now today, there's restoration. Her and her mom are are on great terms. She has a beautiful family. And here's the kicker. She's now in ministry. God's redeemed and restored here. I bring up her story because of this. What if no one told her she needed to turn around? What if people told her she needed to just change a little bit? She needed to lose a couple bad habits and pick up a couple of good habits. She'd still be dead in her sin, wouldn't she? She'd still be blind. She'd still be captive to all the passions that she was living her life for. Jesus, the disciples, and all of Scripture would be false prophets if we didn't need to fundamentally turn around. They would be lying to us, but they're not. God says, you must be born again. The idea of turning or conversion is God's idea. God came up with that. If that sounds offensive to you or your neighbor, again, that's God's idea. We didn't dream that up as a church. 
Here's what this means for us collectively. Neighborhood Bible Church will continue to emphasize our need for conversion, for utter transformation that only God can do. Only God can take a spiritually dead person and make them spiritually alive. We will also guard against our ability to mask the truth. We tend to like to buy into ideas and get second opinions about being held up as, you're not that bad of a person. You're certainly not as bad as, and then we usually go to someone in history or someone around the world. We're going to guard against that because that tends to kind of kind of tickle our ears a little bit, and we're not going to do that. This leads to proper evangelism effort. Let's move on to evangelism. Evangelism is the tell portion of turn and tell, our title. What does the word mean? Simply, it means telling someone about the good news of Jesus. If you've been around NBC for long, you know the play button. Our play button is kind of a significant little image that says a lot about what we're doing as a church. At the very top are the words of Christ in red, which is to make disciples, right? That just keeps us, as a church, reminding ourselves, what are we about? We're about making disciples. And what we've used is three words that are, that are biblical concepts, the idea of worship, that someone enters into a relationship with God and their relationship is restored and put in right order so they're able to worship. But God doesn't just save us and leave us alone. He brings us into a spiritual family. So we use the word community. And if you go through the scriptures and read all the one another's in the scripture, it shows how we're to be in right relationship one with another. And then that leads to a life of sharing. Share is our capacity now, because we're in right relationship with God and one another, to be in right relationship with our neighbors, with our culture. And the word share around here means two very distinct things. One is this. God has called Christians to be servants, to be sacrificial. Jesus became poor. Why? So that we might become rich. You know he's calling us to do the same? So when we use the word share around here, we're talking about sharing our house, our stuff, our money, our time, our energy. We're sharing that with other people. We're emptying ourselves of that so that others would become rich. But a second very distinct meaning of the word share around here is the word evangelism. Evangelism is a big, scary, churchy word to a lot of people, but everyone gets the word share. The best thing you could possibly ever share with someone is a truth that would alter their eternity forever, right? And so sharing the gospel is what we mean when we say the word share. Flip over in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Last week I was out of town and Angel preached. Our third service Spanish pastor came and delivered the message. And he was to, he was to share about the gospel and to kind of clarify the gospel for us. Just the need for a church to be crystal clear on that. And as I listened to the podcast this week and, and heard him teach, I realized this. You see, Angel, although he has another profession, he is fundamentally an evangelist. He loves to tell people about Jesus. He's excited about Jesus, and he just opens his mouth and tells other people about him. So no matter what topic or passage you give to an evangelist, you know what they're going to do when they preach? They're going to talk on evangelism. So when I was listening to the podcast, I was like, oh, okay, so he's sharing a lot about evangelism, which is great. It's okay that we're getting a little bit of two weeks of this. But I wanted to loop back and just clarify the gospel a little bit because it's really important when Romans 1.16 says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power to save everyone. 
We have, we have to understand what is the gospel? What is this message? What is this good news? I want to make sure I get that right. If that's the thing that has the power to save, I want to make sure I have the news right. I don't know about you, but um, have you ever been in a place where you're in a conversation with someone and it feels like they're allowing you into their life and there's sort of an on-ramp where you're going to get to share about your love for Jesus and possibly share the gospel with them? And in that moment, you begin to get sort of tongue-tied. You begin to get sort of mind-tied, like, wait a minute, how do I share this? Where do I go? What do I say next? Anyone else been there? Yeah, yeah, that's me too. Let me give you a tool this morning that is the gospel in three words. Everyone in this room can memorize three words. And these three words and the order with which they're found communicate a ton about this simple message of the gospel. Here it is. God saves sinners. God saves sinners is the gospel in three words. Take the word God. God initiates. There's not a soul on earth, past, present, or future, who will ever go and seek out God on their own. None. So God's the one initiating. God's the one pursuing us. We're dead. Dead people don't seek life. We're blind. We can't make ourselves be able to see. God is the one who initiates. It's all God's leading in that. How about the word saves? Saves implies that danger is present. Saves implies that rescue is needed or else you're in trouble. And then the word sinners. The humble human state of all people that must be repented of and acknowledged before belief can take place is this. I'm a sinner. Not just I'm a part of a sinful race or we're all struggling a little bit, but I am a sinner. And when you get to that place, that's the beginning of a place where you can repent of that. That's the place where you're actually ready to receive rescue. God saves sinners is the gospel in three words. Here it is in scripture form. 1 Timothy chapter 1 verse 15. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am foremost. Now you guys know your Bibles, the, the, the great commission. Who did Jesus say that we're to go and make disciples of? All nations. Everyone. That's a lot of people. What happens sometimes is if, if everyone is all of our responsibility, none of us will take responsibility for anyone, right? Jesus broke this down a little bit. He said, love your neighbor. Love your neighbor as yourself. Let me give you a starting point of how to break all nations down into a place where you might be able to be used by God to exact some influence. Think about right now the 8 to 12 people in your sort of immediate circle of life. Here's a thought. What if you began to consciously share with those whom you're already sharing something with? Many of you share a last name with other people on this planet. That means they're family, right? Some of you share a street name. That means they're your neighbors. These are the people that live right next to you. Some of you share a school with some people. Some of you share office space with people. Some of you share a hockey team or some sports team with other people. Do you see that that's the place where you begin to be a witness? That's the place where you begin to pray and say, God, if you would be so gracious, I will open my mouth and be a witness for you right here amongst these 8 to 12 people. That's how the whole world gets evangelized. 
God has you in your job for a reason. God, God has you in your family for a reason. In your school, in your neighborhood. He puts you in situations so that you can be his witnesses. When we understand the need for conversion, it actually changes our thinking. It's not about how many people you share with, but how many are lost and still need to hear. There's this movie that came out a few years ago called The Guardian. And in The Guardian, it talks about this, this guy who was a, a super stud U.S. Coast Guard rescue swimmer. And it's played by Kevin Costner and his character's Ben Randall. And he's training up this young, cocky state champion swimmer named Jake. And they're kind of going back and forth. And Jake's peppering this old veteran with some different things. And he said, so what's your real number? He was talking about how many people have you saved? What's your real number, Jake says. And Ben says, 22. Jake kind of smirks and goes, 22? He's like, that's not bad. It's not 200. But... And then he gets interrupted by Ben. And Ben says, 22 is the number of people I lost, Jake. The only number I kept track of. To this rescue swimmer, he didn't keep track of how many he saved, which is a whole lot more than 22. He remembered and kept track of those that he lost. What if in our evangelism, what if as we thought about this, we as a church celebrated every single person who gets converted? Every single person who was once walking dead in their sins in darkness and bound by their sin is now freed, becomes a celebration. But in the same breath, in the same moment, we remember and we turn our eyes to the hordes of people who are in desperate need of rescue right here today. It would keep us from patting ourselves on our back, wouldn't it? If we said, wow, our growth is at, is at 50% this year. I was talking with a buddy of mine. He's a pastor out in Atlanta. And we were, we were on staff together at Los Gatos Christian Church way back in the day. And he's a part of this massive church. And we were, we were talking back and forth about ministry and stuff. And, and I said, so what are you guys working on? What are, you know, what, are, what are the things you guys are kind of pressing in on? And he goes, well, he's like, we're really trying to figure out how to break the uh, 17,000 barrier. And I go, yeah, I hate that 17,000 barrier. You know, I'm like, we hovered at 16.8 for a long time, but that one's a bear. You know, I just laughed, and I said, Miles, I said, man, 17,000 sounds like a, like a large number, doesn't it? Like, you would look at that and say, wow, isn't that, aren't they doing great things for the kingdom? Two things come to mind that are pertinent to what we're talking about. One is that he's serving in Atlanta. In Atlanta, Georgia, there is still social reason for people to show up at church. They're not converted at all. They have no interest in spiritual things. They're there because they go to church. That's what you do in the South. Secondly... When you look at that large number of 17,000, you say, well, that's great, but what about the greater northern Atlanta suburbs? Do you know how many people are there? Do you know how many people are still lost and haven't heard? I thrill to hear the number 17,000. I love that. I love being in contact with guys who are working with large numbers. But may we, church, may we never get complacent at looking at the hordes of people who this morning, you guys are the cultural exception to the rule this morning. Showing up at church on Super Bowl Sunday? Who does this, right? I mean, the vast majority of people will not be doing what you're doing right here. So until they've heard, until they've been one, man, we have work to do. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. By the way, to do this, it will require us opening our mouth. It will require us preaching the gospel. Using words. 
Remember from a few weeks ago, from our Preach the Word message, God is a God of words. He gave the Ten Commandments. He gave all the law and the prophets. Jesus Christ was the Word become flesh. He didn't leave us in the dark, but gave us words. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 1. Follow along. It says this. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scripture, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And by grace toward me, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and they believed. Let me draw out just a couple of points from this. Evangelism is opening your mouth to tell the good news. Salvation comes when someone receives that. Salvation comes when... Something is delivered. Good news is delivered. And then trust is put in that reality. Primary to Paul's ministry was this gospel, this good news. That's why we as a church, we will always keep coming back to the gospel. We want to clarify that we know what the gospel is. We want to celebrate that the gospel doesn't just save us out of our sin, which is instantaneous, but it actually sanctifies us. It forms Christ in us. It changes our marriages and our relationships and families and career decisions when we filter it through the gospel. When talking about evangelism, um, a lot of times people jump right to this. What about good works? What place does good works have in that? What about loving on people? What about really sacrificing for people? Doesn't that point the way to Jesus? My answer would be, yes, it does. But let those good works adorn the testimony, not be the sole testimony. What I mean by that is the, the, the good works should be decoration. It should make beautiful this message of the good news that you're proclaiming. Think about it like a Christmas tree. If you have a tree in your living room with no decorations on it, that's just kind of weird, right? Makes your house smell kind of good, but that's kind of odd. What makes a Christmas tree beautiful is all the lights and all the decorations and the star up top. But now take away the tree for a moment. What's that? That's just a pile of confusion, right? So the tree is the gospel message. That's the good news that Jesus saves. Your good works and your loving sacrifice and your loving people and your kindness, that's the lights that are strung on the message. That's the star that's placed there. The ornaments are decorating the message. Your good works are decorating the gospel message. Here's the key for you to remember that's a great freeing truth. It's not good works that saves. It's good news that saves. You know why that's a giant sigh of relief? 
We don't live perfect lives. And if we have a really good week, it's hard to sustain it for another couple months. What if people's salvation was dependent on me being a good person and then holding that up? As Christians, you know what we come to understand? This truth. Good works of a person will never achieve righteousness in the eyes of God, ever. The good work has already been done. That's the good news. That good news is what saves. So that's fundamental to Christianity. But it changes our evangelism in this way. If I know that, yes, of course I'm going to let my life be a light to people, but their salvation doesn't hinge on that. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power. The good news is the power to save people, not my good life. Do you see how freeing that is? Here's what's true. Is that when you begin to share the message of the gospel, you will invite people looking at your life. Hence the jersey. We say sometimes at baptism that baptism is this public declaration that says, I am now on Jesus Christ's team for all eternity. In essence, it's like pulling on a jersey and saying, I'm on this side. I'm a Christian. And when you begin to open your mouth and just say, hey, I'm a Christian, when you begin to share the gospel, you know what happens? Your life becomes scrutinized. People begin to look at your life. When I first got really open with my faith and bold with my faith, a lot of my childhood friends, none of whom were Christians, began to, began to kind of poke at me. And they'd say, oh, Dave, is that really how a Christian should act? Hey, Dave, would a Christian really say that? Hey, Dave, should, it, should a Christian be watching that kind of movie? And it bothered me. It bothered me a ton. You know why? Sometimes because they were dead on right. And I shouldn't have been saying those things. And I shouldn't have been thinking that way. And it was convicting. Other times it was like, yes, I'm allowed to eat a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. Christians do eat that way. What are you talking about? But my friends were doing it just to kind of needle me. But you know what I had done? I had done this right here. I pulled on a Christian jersey and I said, I'm, I'm Jesus's. That's who I follow. When you do that, your life is scrutinized. Here's the question for you that's penetrating. Is your life decorating the gospel or is it somehow defaming the gospel? If you proclaim the story of a gracious God that has forgiven you of all your sin and you're the most unforgiving person in your family, that defames the message of the gospel. Do you see that? When people come around your life, they ought to smell the scent of grace in your life. There ought to be something emanating from your life that just says, man, I actually want to know more about you and your God and your beliefs because of how you live your life. Is your life decorating or defaming the gospel message? First Peter chapter 3 verse 15 says this, We're to always be prepared to make a defense for anyone who asks us for a reason for the hope that is in us. And yet we're to do this with gentleness and respect. Here's a question for you. Do you live in such a way that you have people coming up to you asking you, why, why are you different? We're supposed to have a defense ready. We're supposed to know how to answer that. Hey, Steve, you seem to have a hope in you that is rare. Can, can you just tell me about that? Here's what's probably true of most of us in this room. We don't have hordes of people coming to us on a daily, weekly, monthly basis asking us that question. Some of that could be that people are just blind 
and, and not paying attention to it. But could it be also that our, that our lives aren't just emanating and looking different because we're possessed by the Holy Spirit, which they should? I love hearing these kinds of stories. When people from the office say, hey, I want to have a conversation with you. I just want to ask you about something. I, I, don't know, I don't know how you do this, but everyone else I know in that situation would seek out revenge, and you seem to be forgiving. How do you pull that off? Or receiving really bad news and, and health problems, and people come and say, you know what, I'm not sure how you're pulling this off. Most everyone I know, if they receive the news that you received this week, they would be a puddle of tears. They would be a non-functioning mess. And yet here you are walking calmly. Is that a show or is that real? What's different about you? Our lives ought to be transformed. I love hearing those stories. Because that's people coming around you and saying, something seems different. You're generous where other people are stingy. You're calm and confident where others are so fearful. Why is that? Gentleness and respect is how we are to evangelize. Let me show you a couple pictures, and you can tell me what's both good and bad about them. I think there's something good here in evangelism and something really bad. What do you think is good about this? Okay, The fact that someone's talking is good, right? That's a positive in evangelism, um, that you actually open your mouth and you're trying to communicate a message. What's bad about it? No one's listening, right? This is our culture right now, by the way. Everyone wants to tweet. Everyone wants to get their message out. Everyone wants to just respond to every blog post ever. It's often very unput together, unthought out. People are just yapping all the time. This is our culture. Here's, here's another way, though. What's good and bad about this? What's good about it? Yeah, someone's listening. That's a positive. What's bad? Yeah. So let me tell you what will never get you in trouble with the authorities and hung on a cross. If you engage with people and say, hey, I just want to hear your story. Tell me where you're at spiritually. Tell me what you believe about the afterlife. What do you think we're doing here on this earth? And you're just a really good listener. I think that's a really critical part to evangelism. And I think a lot of Christians miss that part. But if that's all you ever do, you won't be a, a help to anyone. Because all they'll do is say, wow, someone's actually listening to me in this culture. That's a gift. Let me just pour it out. If you never speak back, if you never communicate back, you're not helping that person. In some ways, this can be uh, termed as gentleness and respectful, but it could just be cowardice, that you don't open your mouth and communicate back. In this image, we see the potential, at least, for real communication happening, where someone's opening their mouth, trying to deliver a message, and that person is listening. Friends, turn and tell are both God's ideas. I absolutely love the stories that I hear around this place of people like, all the time. How did you hear about the church? Well, I met one of the people that goes to your church in line at a store, and they invited me, and I ignored them. And then I bumped into them again at the park, and I took up their invitation, and here I am. Other people who work with people, and they show up at church. God's doing some amazing things, not just at this church, but a lot of churches in the area. I love, love, love hearing those stories. I also long for more. 
I long for more people to hear that. And catch this, inviting someone to church is a great thing, but inviting someone to church doesn't save them. The, the message of the gospel is what saves. Now, sometimes a precursor to that is just, just come to church. Just come and be a part of something on a Sunday morning. But ultimately, we want the person to hear the message of the gospel. You know, statistically speaking, the longer you're a part of the church, the less you evangelize, the less you share. Here's a true confession moment for me. This week in my office, as I studied this and prepped this for you, I did what every preacher should do, and that is preach the message to yourself first, and I just had to repent. I said, God, in other seasons, I have been so much more intentional about getting away from churchy things and churchy meetings and being physically in this building with an eye toward talking to people in this neighborhood about you. Forgive me. And he has respurred and reawakened me to do that, to get back to some places where I've walked in the past. I was on a flight this week. And I was pondering earlier in the week before the flight, I was pondering this question of myself. I'll ask it of you. How many times has the gospel come out of your mouth in the last week? How about the last month? Now, I'm a pastor, so I preach in a church. This, this kind of stuff's easy. It's easy to talk about the gospel in a church on Sunday morning to people who are sitting here in church, right? So I'm not counting that. But it's a penetrating question for me. I said, wow, how many times have I shared the gospel this week This month, I was on a flight to Atlanta uh, this past week, and I learned this from my dad, that on a flight, you have someone sitting next to you, and it's a perfect opportunity just to bear witness to Jesus. So I always pray, and, and I just say, God, whoever sits next to me, would you give me the open opportunity? I'm available. I'm here. I'm looking for it. I'm ready. I don't have to do it. I'm not going to beat them over the head if that's not the right moment, but I'm looking for opportunities. So this woman came and sat down, a buddy of mine sitting on my left, and uh, I got talking to her and chatting a little bit. I'm always starting conversations off different ways. One of the things that I happen to know is that if you talk to people outside of the South or outside of church and you mention that what you do as a pastor, that's often a conversation killer. You know, if I want out of a conversation, I just go, so what do you do? And they say, whatever. And I say, oh, I'm a pastor. And they go, oh, okay, thank you. Look at the time. And they leave, right? They, they don't want to talk about that. So on a flight, I'm, I, I'm, I tend to be cautious about just leading with that thing. And so um, I was actually flying out to Atlanta to do some foster care training and some meeting with some people out there. And so, so I'm starting this conversation with this woman, and, and I said, you know, so are you going home or, or heading out? You know, we start talking a little bit. And she said, so what, you know, what, what are you doing? And I said, well, I said, I'm, I'm heading out to this conference on foster care. And I, I kid you not, I'm sitting in the middle seat. She goes like this. She goes, oh, okay. And she physically turns her body like this. Like, we're done. We are not talking anymore. So I'm like, huh, note to self, I'm a pastor who cares a lot about foster ministry. So if I ever want to kill a conversation like doubly sure, I just mention both of those things in one conversation, and it just, and it just kills it. Now, the way the rest of that flight went, I wasn't able to share the gospel with her, and I'm okay with that. Again, it's not for me. I don't have to shove that down her throat. Uh, on the flight home, <laughs> I was sitting there, and you know how sitting on a flight, and my flesh wants no one to sit next to me because I like an open seat next to me as much as the next person. But in the spirit, I'm like, Lord, all right, just give me an opportunity. 
I guess God thought I did so bad on the flight out that I had an empty row. I had my, just myself on the flight home. So I just had to ponder my strategy for evangelism there. I opened my mouth to this woman to begin in a conversation because I'm compelled by the love of Christ, because I'm utterly convinced that if she's lost in her sin and hasn't heard about Jesus, that she needs to hear about Jesus. I want to leave you with two examples of people who opened their mouth. One is Noah. Noah lived in a wicked generation, and he believed and trusted in God, and it showed. Because he worked really hard at doing two things for a really long time. He built a boat as a means of salvation, not because it was relevant to his culture, not because church experts had told him that's how you win people to Christ, but why? Because God said, this is the way of salvation. But that's a really big boat, God. I know. That's the way of salvation. Build it. And then he spent his time preaching repentance and righteousness. Second Peter says that Noah was a preacher of righteousness. I believe that he preached repentance and righteousness because he was utterly convinced with every fiber of his being that the generation he was living in was about to be swept away to their death. And that motivated him. And that got me thinking, what if Noah just did sort of lifestyle evangelism and just did a bunch of good works for his neighbors, right? So he's building a boat, and then while he's doing that, he goes to his next-door neighbor, and he, he chops his wood and says, hey, can I stack it for you too? And the neighbor goes, sure, you know, I'll, I'll let you do that for me. He's doing good works, but the neighbor would be confused. You'd say, Noah's super, super into wood, I guess. I don't know, he builds giant boats, and he's like chopping my wood out there, and I get to watch TV. I guess I'm cool with that. Noah opened his mouth because he was convinced a flood was coming and there was imminent danger. Think about God and his good works. One of his good works is creation. When you look at creation, you get a sense of your smallness. You get a sense of the majesty of God, the power of God, the wonder of God. But if all he left us with was was just sort of general good works about creation, there's so much about God that we wouldn't know about. How about the cross? We just sang of this. Mighty is the power of the cross. The cross is the ultimate good work, right? But if it wasn't talked about in advance by the prophets and by Jesus predicting his own death, and then by the apostles and disciples explaining what was going on with the cross, wouldn't we just be confused? We'd say, wow, I guess he was a meek person. But we wouldn't understand the saving message of what the cross has for us. And so that leads me to be convinced That yes, I ought to do good works. Yes, I ought to love my neighbor. Yes, I ought to be opening my mouth and telling them I'm a Christian. But none of those good works save that person. What saves them is the good news. So God, help us get to a place of sharing the good news. Church, what if this year God would allow you to be involved in one person's salvation? doesn't mean that you're saving them. God does the saving. But what if you prayed right now and said, God, in 2016... Would you be gracious enough to me to allow me to participate in the proclamation of the gospel and that someone would receive it? Can you imagine what that would do for your own faith? Imagine what that would do for your own growth as a Christian as they start coming to you and asking questions. Hey, what am I supposed to do next? I repented and I trusted and I got baptized. Now what? That would revolutionize our church. We have a lot of babies at this church. New life and new babies just kind of stimulates all kinds of life and amazing things. I long for that, for us to grow in that way spiritually.
Let me invite you to just close your eyes for a moment. I jotted down three statements that just in the quietness of your own space there, sitting in a chair between you and God, you can kind of rate yourself and see how you fit with all of this. And if you're not a Christian this morning, welcome. I'm utterly thrilled that you're here, but this won't make any sense. This is really for a Christian to think through. See how true this is for your life. I am utterly convinced that change is needed for all of mankind and that the danger is real. Number two, I am always mindful that God is the one calling and converting and transforming. And so therefore, I must rely on Him for all of my evangelistic effort. Statement number three, I am thrilled that God invites me to participate in salvation of people. That means that I get to speak out loud. I get to live out loud in such a way that it would point people to the saving message of the gospel. God, we need your help in this. We are, just like Paul, in need of prayer for effectiveness in our witness. Just like Paul, we're in need of people praying for us to be courageous. Were it left to us, we would leave the conversation in some very comfortable, plain places that would leave people in grave danger. Jesus, the cure is found in you. You're the one who lived the perfect life, the life that none of us could ever live. You're the one who died as a substitute on our behalf so that the punishment of sin falls on you instead of on us. And Jesus, you are the one that then gives to us righteousness. So that in the eyes of God, it's as if we get to take your resume, all the right things that you did, all the sinful things that you didn't do, and in exchange, God, you took our resume, all of our crud, all of our rebellion, all of our complacency, And God, we just stand humbled by that this morning, longing for others to receive that and trust that and walk in that. If this morning you're a person who's never made a decision to trust in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, this morning's the morning. Don't leave this place. If God is calling you, if God is nudging you, don't leave this place without talking to someone and saying, hey, I think that's me. I was dead in my sin, but God's stepping into my life this morning. I want that. I want to receive that. Church, let's sing together. So we take up our offering here. Join us in singing this.